I'll just give some brief instruction because my throat is still not very strong. <clears throat> just a reminder that these uh, one prep sessions we uh, practice together till midnight. We have our evening chanting at about 11.30, so after the talk you can practice sitting, walking as you wish. We obviously are practicing here to put an end to dukkha. Sometimes it's useful to refresh our understanding of what dukkha is. So as we know, the first noble truth of dukkha is to be understood, comprehended. It's the appropriate um, duty towards that first noble truth. <clears throat> The Buddha talked about <coughs> dukkha, dukkata, the normal kind of dukkha that I think most people understand, the suffering of body and mind, physical pain, mental pain, grief, despair, sorrow, and so on. You might say the dukkha of the here and now as a result of our past karmic actions we have unpleasant experiences of body and mind that we have to deal with in life. <coughs> then we have viparinama dukkha, the dukkha of change, the inherent change in all things and especially the fact that even when we seek the opposite of dukkha, we seek sukha, pleasure, happiness in different experiences through our senses. It's inherently dukkha because it changes, it doesn't last. The nature of the different realms of existence that beings live in, however, good they may appear, the happiness, the pleasure they can source in those realms of existence doesn't last. So we are members of the karma loka, the sense, sensual realm. As we know, the pleasures of the senses are impermanent. They arise, they pass away. <coughs> we often seek to distract ourselves or get away from feelings of dukkha by seeking out pleasure. And we might get pleasure, get happiness, but then it doesn't last because it's in the nature to fade. That's the nature of the sensual realm. And even the fine material sphere or realm or the immaterial sphere or realm, ultimately the bliss, the happiness that one can 
attain in those realms is still subject to change, it doesn't last. Even if one was to be reborn as a Brahma god, it wouldn't be forever. The last kind of dukkha we talk about is Sankara dukkha. kind of dukkha is sankara dukkha, the fact that this is a, existence is conditioned, the life that we lead, this body and mind, the world that we live in, <coughs> it's subject to causes and conditions or process of conditionality. And to be a human being there's many factors that make life happen. We have different physical elements of a human being and then we have the mental side, feelings, memories, thoughts and so on. All these are conditions which arise, pass away according to different factors, different causes. And it's as if they're almost, these different causal factors are competing with each other the conditioned nature of this existence we have, say, as a human being, it's almost as if <coughs> the parts of the body are in competition with each other. So sometimes things get out of sync when we get, say, viruses or disease or injuries. It's because you might say one part of the body is uh, prominent in the part with the virus or the disease or the injury and other parts are less dominant at that time. So the body is at ill at ease, unhappy, feeling pain, suffering and so on. It's very rare that the body is feeling totally in harmony all the time. It doesn't last very long, that experience. Even on a daily basis we have aches and pains, hunger, thirst, feeling hot, feeling cold and so on. Mentally it's the same. Mentally <clears throat> we dif have different emotions, feelings, almost like competing with each other. All of these are arising out of different causal conditions. Then externally it's the same. So as if human beings, we're all living in the world and we're competing for the resources of the world, for energy, for different resources, different forms of pleasure, and we're competing to control the world. We want to try and control nature, control the world and make it the way we like, the way we want. But because of its conditional nature, we can't control it. We can only control the world up to a certain extent. Then with all these other people around controlling it, we end up having conflict and competition with others as well. But even if we were here on our own, we still wouldn't be able to control it. It's 
beyond us. <coughs> so these d different kinds of dukkha are affecting us as human beings. And if you want to bring it down, reduce it down to what is the real problem, well, the Buddha said it's the sense of self that leads us to have all this dukkha. Because with the sense of self, say, when we have some pain, the reason we go looking for pleasure and hoping the pleasure we get we can hold on to is because we have a sense of a self who is experiencing the pain, who is experiencing the pleasure, who is trying to hold on to the pleasure and so on. You know, even though <clears throat> this world is very much out of our control, the sense of self is always trying to delude us. And we keep thinking we can control things, make it the way we want. So the sense of self is constantly affecting us so if we can have enough mindfulness, enough wisdom to see that, see through it, let go of the attachment to the sense of self and see what you might call the emptiness or the freedom of the mind, <coughs> then we have also have a chance to free the mind from the experience of dukkha. In talking about dukkha, the Buddha sometimes would uh, talk about the person, the unenlightened individual, when they experience some pain, say some physical pain, they also get mental pain because they get the aversion towards the physical pain. It's like, say, when you're sitting meditation, after a while sitting, you get some pain in your legs or your back. <coughs> then not only do you experience the physical sensations, but you also have your aversion to deal with as well, the mental aversion. And where we're taking our lead from is the noble ones, the noble disciple of the Buddha. The Buddha said they don't react with aversion. They bring up mindfulness and clear comprehension, direct it to that pain, and they just know pain as pain. It's a painful feeling, it's like that. And the mind remains detached without any further mental pain. He said it's a bit like the unenlightened person is like someone who gets shot with an arrow and they get shot with a second arrow. There's the physical pain and then the mental pain of aversion and rejection of that physical pain is like a second arrow. <coughs> or what we say, double dukkha. The noble one doesn't get the second arrow. They're still living in the world, they still have vibhaka karma to deal with, so, so they'll get pain, unpleasant experiences, painful sensations. But in their mind they don't make any extra pain out of it. They don't go to aversion, they don't reject the pain, they're mindful of it, and they see it as not self. They don't take ownership of it in their mind. That's our aim in the practice, to develop that kind of mindfulness, equanimity and detachment <coughs> towards the experiences of the world. 
the unenlightened person has some painful experience, then they get the mental pain that comes afterwards, the second arrow, then the Buddha said they'll run off looking for sense pleasures to distract themselves from this painful experience. But the sense pleasures don't actually help them learn to deal with it any better, they just distract themselves with the sense pleasures. So they never learn and they're actually quietly feeding the whole habit and tendency to always react with aversion to pain, painful experiences, always seek more pleasure, more distraction. So the whole situation gradually gets worse. The noble disciple is doing it in the, the opposite way. They experience something unpleasant, but they establish mindfulness. They undermine the tendency towards aversion. <coughs> they undermine the tendency to look for sense pleasure to distract themselves. So little by little, they're purifying the mind, freeing it from greed, hatred and delusion through the practice of mindfulness and developing insight. And this is what our practice is based on, developing the Eightfold Noble Path, developing this skill in bringing up mindfulness, maintaining it in all postures, as Ajahn Chah used to say, whether it's standing, walking, sitting, lying down, maintaining mindfulness, detached awareness, so that even when we have unpleasant experiences, we let them just stay as just that much. It's just an unpleasant experience. And we don't always go seeking out more pleasure, distracting ourselves. Rather, we value the quality of detached awareness, the quality of equanimity more and more. When we practice in the monastery, then <coughs> we use the Vinaya training as our foundation because this is bringing up these very qualities that we need. We practice keeping the Vinaya, learning the Vinaya, keeping the Vinaya. It brings up mindfulness instantly. We learn to compose our speech, our actions, even if internally we're still not peaceful, the level of mindfulness and, and understanding we need to keep the Vinaya necessarily means we're training ourselves. Ajahn Chah used to say just training in the Vinaya already will be bringing up the qualities of Samadhi, the qualities of a peaceful mind, because you have to maintain mindfulness and vigilance looking after your mind in different situations if you're going to keep the Vinaya. When he was a young monk, <clears throat> he sometimes said he despaired because there's so many rules that we have to keep in the Vinaya, so much to learn. That was one of the issues he brought up with Lumpur Man. Yeah, there's so many rules, maybe it's more than a human being can learn. Because as bhikkhus, as you know, we, we don't just learn the Patimoka rules, but all the rules in the Vinaya Pitika and all their sub-rules and their, the different permutations that um, 
a major rule can be broken down into minor rules and so on. <clears throat> it would seem like thousands of rules to be learnt. So he asked Ajahn Man, and Ajahn Man said, really the important thing is to value the mind, the human mind, as your most precious object, and then protect it with the qualities of Hiriyotapa. These qualities the Buddha called the, the guardians of the world or the protectors of the world. The Buddha's words is Sukha Loka Bala. Loka is world, Pala is like protector. Sukha means bright, so the bright guardians of the world. And these qualities are based on <coughs> understanding your own self-worth as a human being, so having self-respect, and then respect and understanding the value of other human beings. Hiri is a sense of shame, just that <coughs> sensitivity to yourself, valuing yourself, self-respect, and you're not wishing to do something that would reduce your own self-worth, harm yourself, something that's you know, unwholesome, that uh, would be of disadvantage to yourself. So you value your own self-worth as a human being and it's a quality that you preserves you and you know, stops you doing things that would bring up shame stops you from embarrassing yourself, stops you from doing things that harm yourself. Otapa means the intelligent fear of wrongdoing. That's based on also the respect for others. So obviously it's an awareness of the consequences of our actions. If we follow unskillful ways of body speech then or, or mind, then we're harming ourselves and there'll be consequences. There'll be suffering coming back to us. If you have these two qualities, Lumpur Man said to Ajahn Chah, then you can keep all the Vinaya because all of the rules of the Vinaya come out of these qualities of wanting to <coughs> look after, preserve our own self-worth, our own value as a human being and then also being sensitive and aware to the value of others. So all the rules in the Vinaya training, they're all about <coughs> teaching us proper conduct, the way to um, act, the way to speak. They support our own practice of mindfulness and composure and then they support skillful interaction with other people in this world, people, even animals. So if we're developing Hiriyotapa on a regular basis through keeping the Vinaya, then already we're making this very firm, solid foundation in our practice. Our relationships with others tend to go well. We're doing our duties as a bhikkhu in the monastery or wherever we are. And the quality of mindfulness and clear comprehension is constantly being cultivated. And this is the most important thing because 
provides us with that firm, stable um, quality of mind, which when we come to meditate allows the mind to settle down very easily. We don't have a lot of regret, anxiety about what we've said and done. And we've already been training in mindfulness, so the mind is already alert. It's already, as it were, looking after itself. <coughs> so then our efforts in sitting and walking meditation bear more fruit. Often you'll find when you're meditating, we put a lot of effort into sitting and walking many hours. But if our practice of the Vinaya and our maintenance of Hiriotope is not yet very solid, then often the uh, anxiety, the restlessness that comes up in our meditation is a direct consequence of having not been very mindful in our external behavior and what we've been doing before. So the more effort we put into keeping the Vinaya, then the more easily our mind settles down when we meditate. And we find the experience of meditation more pleasant, more enjoyable. The mind goes a little bit deeper, becomes more peaceful. <clears throat> and this ability to maintain equanimity and evenness of mind towards different conditions is upheld. This is what we're looking for, this ability to contemplate with wisdom, with, with insight, to see the lack of self in these different experiences we have as human beings. We have some pain, some pleasure, we have a body, we have a mind. Normally we keep, we keep coming back to this sense of self, me, mine, myself. We identify with everything. And this is why dukkha is such a prominent experience for us. Constantly falling into dissatisfaction, discontent, aversion, unhappiness in different ways. Because we don't see beyond it, this sense of self. <clears throat> we don't see the impermanence of our experiences. We keep relating to the world as if there is this solid, unchanging self that we've been very used to identifying with and holding up in our ideal, in our mind. <coughs> but now we're meditating and developing some mindfulness and insight, we can see through that. And the very tool of mindfulness the tool of investigation starts to expose that and it's not what we used to, what we thought it was. The sense of a solid self starts to fade away and the mind starts to experience a spaciousness. As an idea it sounds a little bit disappointing to let go of sense of self. We always think, well what's left? Well, what's left is the spaciousness, the freedom of a mind that is left with mindfulness and insight rather than just beliefs, theories, reactions and different experiences of suffering. In the old days in Europe when the Roman Empire was in its uh, 
heyday, they said all, lo- all roads that are built, they're all, all leading to Rome, lead back to Rome. Whereas we practice the Dhamma, we have all, all our practices, all our efforts are leading towards this freedom of mind. The emptiness of mind, meaning empty of self, empty of delusion, empty of ignorance. <clears throat> and the more you practice, the more you see everything is leading in this same direction. Training the mind to develop true insight into the way things are. Ajahn Man said, have to make the practice like a circle. So it's constantly... Each part of the circle, each each segment is constantly supporting the others. So sila supports samadhi, samadhi supports panya and insight. Panya supports the keeping of better sila. And round it goes. So this cycle is a good cycle, self-supporting cycle of the practice and all leading towards this (coughs) experience of the empty mind, free, free from suffering, free from the sense of self. The alternative is the cycle of, uh, say, the Paticca Samubhada, dependent origination. We have ignorance conveniently put as the starting point, but supporting the arising of karmic formations, Consciousness, name and form, right through to craving, attachment, becoming, and then birth. Birth is followed by aging, sickness, and death, pain, sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair, and all the suffering of a human life. And then that experience that is the cause for more ignorance. It's also a self perpetuating cycle, cycle of how suffering arises in human mind experience. <coughs> so we have the circle of the practice, sila samadhi panya, countering the circle or the cycle of dependent origination, which is how suffering arises. If we keep putting effort into developing this circle of sila samadhi panya, then little by little we're undermining that circle or the cycle of Paticca Samubhada. This is how they say, this is how gradually the causes and conditions for future birth are being eroded away. How the mind is gradually moving towards Nibbana. This is why the Buddha could say, say for a Sodapana stream winner, the maximum they have seven more lifetimes experience before Nibbāna. And maybe if they're Bharami are very well developed, maybe only three lifetimes, or even only one lifetime. It's because this circle of practice of Sīla Samādhi Panya has been so cultivated that it's become a very powerful conditioning factor in the mind. The mind no longer drops away to ignorance, creating a sense of self out of experience, getting deluded, falling back into attachment to pleasure and pain and so on. <coughs> the experience of equanimity and detachment is very much established. 
So little by little, the power of the path, sila samadhi panya, is eroding away any attachment, all the causes, the attachments that lead to future birth. So whether it's a hundred lives being reduced to fifty lives, or seven lives being reduced to three lives, down to one life, down to no life. As long as we're practicing in this way, little by little we're eroding away the causes for future birth. This is what the Buddha, out of his compassion, was intending for us as bhikkhus, to learn this skill so we can experience the freedom of the mind, the happiness of the mind. So I'll leave you with these thoughts for your reflection tonight and we can carry on practicing. As I said, evening chanting will be at 11.30 tonight.